0: It has a rather special place in my spiritual history. I grew up in a church that was called the Reformed Church in America, but I grew up in one of its congregations here in Kentucky where nobody <coughs> had ever seen a catechism. Nobody would even know what that term meant, But I was raised spiritually by a grandmother who understood the need for catechizing. And so as a young child, her answer to catechizing was to have me memorize the Psalms. And from the book of Psalms, I really grew my understanding of who God was as a young child. She built it around three particular Psalms that she had me memorize in total. The first one was Psalm 1, and that's a fairly foundational psalm. You are introduced to the fact that there are effectively two ways to live in this world. There is the way of the Lord, or there is the way of the mocker and the wicked. Psalm 23 was the second one, and Psalm 23 introduces you to Uh, the source of help in this world. God is the shepherd. God is the one who transforms. Uh, You can see in Psalm 23 where the first three verses focus on us as sheep, and then the last three verses, we have been transformed into guests in God's house. You don't welcome sheep in and put them at the table but we have been transformed by him. And then finally, in the last verse, you have surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you have uh, the Lord, our hope, final eternal life with him. And then the last psalm that she had memorized in total is this one, Psalm 100. It is a crescendo of praise and specifically a a praise that raises out of a thankful heart. It blesses God's name because of gratitude. It is the perfect response to the grace of God uh, that one receives when one has been transformed by his hand. And so no idea what a catechism was, but Grandma thought through systematically what I needed, and that's what she trained me in. And I still have those Psalms memorized in the King James Version, but I have them memorized. They serve as a kind of lattice for my spiritual thinking. I was uh, reintroduced mentally to Psalm 100 some two months ago. I was at uh, the zoo up in Cincinnati and My people had decided they wanted to take the toddler for a train ride, and I didn't feel much like doing that. So uh, I sat and waited for them as they did the circuit. And while waiting, I went to the Internet because that's what we do these days. When you have nothing else to do, you get online. And it's amazing what you can find when you begin to kind of surf the Internet. I mean, the old joke that you go to the Internet to figure out when some Something's time is, and seven hours later, you're watching a video about how uh, giraffes can be taught to yodel. I mean, that's the way things work. Um, So I'm I'm surfing the, the web, and I find a catch of old newspapers from 1947. They are Jewish newspapers. They are specifically from Reform Judaism, and somebody has catalogued them. And the first one that I hit was a a Jewish commentary on Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and this Jewish commentator is actually kind of talking down to the text. He has sort of a smug attitude, and he talks about how the language here in Genesis is rough and plain, and it represents an uneducated people, and I'm thinking this is your book. The The Hebrew Bible is still held by Judaism as the Bible. Aren't you supposed to be rooting for the home team? Well, they're not, but then it's Reformed Judaism, and Reformed Judaism has nothing to do with Reformed Christianity. We have the ED. Um, Reformed Judaism is the liberal wing of Judaism. Half of those who hold it are, in fact, atheists, so... Uh, you know, this is par for the course for that. But still, it's, it's got me hooked in in reading, so I'm reading a number of articles, and uh, I come across another one where the, the writer is talking about the misuse of the Hebrew Bible by Christians. Uh, according to him, we don't read the Hebrew Bible aright, because it's very clear in the Hebrew Bible that the focus is on exclusion. God has called a people to himself. It is the chosen people, uh, the Jewish people, and everything about the Hebrew scriptures is exclusive. Uh, God loves this group of people. God will bless this group of people. Uh, There's really no hope for those who are not in that group of people, but Christians have read the Hebrew Bible as being inclusive, as if the grace and love of God extended to all types and conditions of men. Uh, They went through several, of the early church fathers, showing how uh, the early Christians read the Hebrew Bible as God was instituting a plan to redeem not just those who were racially Jewish, but from all races, all types of people, it was an interesting article. It was as smug as the first one. But as I began to to absorb what the man was saying, I began to think back to Psalm 100, and I wondered if he had ever even read this psalm again in his Bible. Uh, psalm 100 is so different than what he is describing. To see the difference, one only has to apply those five uh, analytical questions that you can apply to any written thing, the who, what, where, when, why, how questions, uh, let's do that. In Psalm 100, which we just sang, um, who is the psalm directed to? Well, if you're reading the King James Bible, the first verse says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands, it's a reference to all the nations of the earth. That reference does not change in any of the five verses as we sing through the psalm. We are calling all lands to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Or more literally, most other English translations, including the Geneva Bible, which was before the King James, says all the earth that is what the hebrew says but it is all the earth it is very clear that the psalm is a call out not just to israelites or even israelites but it's a call out to the chinese it's a call out to the scythians it's a call out to uh, the the people of the american midwest it's a call out to every human being in all place and time, uh, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. It cannot be missed that the psalm is speaking to every descendant of Adam. I wondered how that was taken in the world of Judaism. So I did a little research and I found effectively, and I'm boiling down a lot of very highfalutin language, but effectively what was said was, well, it says it's to all the earth, sure, but it really means all the earth that has been redeemed by God, and in mind is the promised land, it's the people in the promised land, because that's what God has redeemed, that's what God's grace has reached, God's grace hasn't reached the whole earth. So when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, all the earth, he's really talking about that little sliver of the earth is what they said. It doesn't match the context. It doesn't match the glory of the psalm. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the psalm because those who are being addressed are told, know ye that the Lord, he is God. It suggests that they may not have known that. One would think, if it was addressed to the chosen people of the Promised Land, they'd already have that one down. Given their history, maybe not, but it is supposed to be a foundation. Uh, The psalm is very clearly a call to all human beings. All you lands, all the earth, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Which brings us to the question of what specifically does the psalm call those who are addressed? What are they called to do? Well, it's a it's a beautiful list. You are to make a joyful shout or a joyful noise, and it is specifically to be directed to the Lord, to God. You are to come before his presence. And if this psalm is directed to all the earth, that is a truly, truly radical and revolutionary statement, Because uh, all the way through the Hebrew Bible, it's it's true God shows his holiness in quite a number of walls between us and him. Uh, You can't go into the most holy place. You can't really go into the holy place in the temple. The whole sacrifice sacramental system of the old testament focuses on god's holiness and his separateness from sinners Uh, even those who worship him who are in his covenant have to pass through layers of sacrifices to reach him but the psalm throws open the door to the earth and says come into his presence everyone come in come into his presence come into his presence with singing which, by the way, is paralleled with make a joyful noise, which means that the joke that says, you know, well, the Lord says make a joyful noise, so I'll sing in church even though I'm terrible, actually, biblically, that's, that's okay. That's, that's actually what's being described. Your singing can be a joyful noise, and God wants you to do it, but he wants you to come into his presence. Come to him. You are specifically to enter his gates and his courts. Notice the plurality. It is not you are to enter his gate or enter his court. The Levitical law opened the outer court outside of the building of the temple to non-Jewish people. If you were Gentile, you could come into that court. You could pass through that gate. But here the psalmist throws open all the gates. And he invites the entire world into all the courts. That includes the holy place where the covenant worshiper would bring his sacrifice and give it to the priest and the sacrifice would be made. It's plural, so it even includes the most holy place where only the high priest can go in once a year and that only with blood. Uh, The original hearers of Psalm 100 must have been rather shocked. It is a a call into the very heart of God, enter his gates, enter his courts, come right into where God is. There is is a, a cloth between the most holy place and the holy place. Come through it, come into God's presence, come into it with thanksgiving, come into it with praise, but come into it. God bids you into his presence in this psalm. Um, He does say, be thankful unto him. It is a command that your thankfulness, not just be outwardly with your singing, not just outwardly with your words, but actually rooted in the heart. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name with your praises. Bless his name with your thankfulness. So this is a, a call to reality. If you are outside of God's presence, but your heart has no thanksgiving to him, it's not really inviting you in because the command says be thankful, but it is inviting all types and conditions of men in to praise, to thank, to sing, to make a joyful noise. It is a glowingly happy song bidding all types and conditions of men to God. And why? Why are they bidden into his presence? Well, the psalmist twice turns from his drawing men and answers that question and it is not quite the same answer in both places. The first is verse 3. Know that the Lord (coughs) he is God. So all... Mankind is bidden to know there is one God, and he is Yahweh. He is the God who has declared his name, I am that I am. None of the other gods that men worship are God. We heard David sing this in his song of praise. Here is it's Given as a reason for the world to come in, the gods you're worshiping, that the Bible is extremely exclusive, but it's exclusive in the sense that truth is exclusive. Truth is one. All you, of all the nations, come into God's presence. He is willing for you to come, but know that he is the only God. He is the only God. Now, you may have been attempting to worship him under other forms and under other names, But you worship incorrectly. You are missing God. So come because he is the only God and it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. You will notice that all the way through God's word, the doctrine of divine creation is foundational. It is not just in Genesis 1 through 3 where you have creation as though that is just an event and we can cut that from our mind at our leisure. Rather, it continues to come up all the way through God's word. Why should men seek God? Well, he is their creator. He is your creator. He designed you. He gave you your gifts, your graces. He gave you your personality. He designed the world with all of its natural laws, with everything that you live, move, and have your being in. Uh, Why would you not come into the presence of the one who is your origin, the one who has uh, created you? You have not created yourself. In the Septuagint translation, the oldest translation of God's word uh, into another language than Hebrew, uh, the text says, for he is our creator and we are his. That is not a right translation. The right translation is we have not made ourselves. It's almost as if God knew what man would say, that man would invent a mythology that says creation creates itself. But uh, the sentiment in the Septuagint is correct. If you create something, it's yours, right? I mean, if you create it, you intuitively acknowledge this is mine, you would not particularly like someone who came and took what you created and co-opted it. In our hearts, we know that possession is nine-tenths of the law, that's true in law in general, Uh, God is your creator. And if he is your creator, he owns you. And I know that we don't like that language. We don't like being put in our place. We don't like somebody owning us. But the Bible very clearly and foundationally says that you are owned by God. He possesses you by right. And so the psalmist bids you to come into the presence of the one who owns you. Um, We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Again, that is directed not just to those who are in God's covenant. It is directed to all the earth. And this is not the only place you will see this. In the prophet Amos, in chapter... uh, chapter 9 and verse 7, God speaks through the prophet, and he speaks to people who believe God only cares about those who are visibly religious. And he says this, Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt the Philistines from Kaptor and the Syrians from Kerr. Now, it's in the context of rebuke, but it's the same doctrine. The Israelites, our forefathers in the (coughs) the visible church, celebrated that God had brought them out of Egypt, and well, they should. In fact, God calls us to gratitude for his deliverance. But when God is rebuking the visible church, he says, do you think I didn't shepherd others? I brought the Philistines out of Crete. They used to live there, but I led them away from there, and now they live in Philistia. Uh, The Syrians, they used to live in a place called Kerr. Now they live in Syria. Why did that happen? It is because my hand is sovereign over the earth. Things happen because I decree it to happen. And actually, if you know your ancient history, when God says, did I not bring the Philistines from chapter he's referring to what we now call the Bronze Age Collapse. It was an apocalyptic moment in human history where most of the great civilizations that had existed for a thousand years got swept off the face of the map because God was moving peoples around. Uh... When the Philistines come from Crete or Catfor, uh they turn the Sea Peoples and they raid all the great peoples and the entire history of man has changed. And God says, I did that. I guide <coughs> human history. And so when God says to all the earth, you are my people, the sheep of my pasture, that is true in a general way. Now, there is a people that God shepherds. That he says, You are the apple of my eye. It is a statement of his deep care and concern for them. They are the elect people of God. And in more brighter moments in God's word, they can celebrate that they are shepherded by God strictly for their benefit and their blessing. But it's not like God is not the shepherd of everyone. God owns everyone by creation, God moves everyone by creation. And so the world is invited into the presence of this one who is, in fact, already shepherding them, who is, in fact, already sovereign over them. And then in uh, verse five, the psalmist returns to why you should come into his presence. And he says, For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures to all generations. That needs some breaking down. Um, you didn't get to invent God. God preexisted you. God will continue to be alive when you're dead. And you were created into a universe that you had no say over. Speaking totally, totally hypothetically... Um, God could have been anything God was. But you come into a universe where you find that God is good. In fact, the essence of having faith is believing God is good. Martin Luther made the comment once that it didn't take faith to believe there was a God, and he's right. All the way through human history, the grand majority of human beings have believed in a holy other. It's only logical to do so. We live in a universe of causality. Everything comes from somewhere. Ultimately, there has to be something that is not caused to be the first cause. All of humanity has recognized that. It doesn't take faith, really, to believe that God is out there. But it takes faith to believe that God is good, and the psalmist invites the whole world into his presence saying, God is good. You have found that God is good. And God is the covenant-keeping God. His mercy is everlasting. The term there is hesed. It means his covenantal faithfulness. God will keep his covenant. His truth endures to all generations. Another term that is always used in, in the context of covenant, and it talks about God's faithfulness. When it says his truth endures, it's not just saying whatever God says is true, although it certainly means that it means that God is utterly faithful. The reason why God never lies, or to put it in the New Testament term, he's the not lying God, is because God is utterly faithful. You can't really lie and be faithful, but God is faithful. And so the, the psalmist throws open the gate of the temple and says, come in, the God you will find here is good, and he is covenant-keeping. Come in, come into his presence. But now, our Jewish friends from 1947 may raise their hand and say, Aha, now we have you. He is the covenant-keeping God, right? Well, the covenant is with us. He is the one who is utterly faithful. He has promised to be our God. So how can you say that the Gentiles, the people of the world, would be invited into his presence Aren't you arguing against what you're saying because God has explained it? Well, they are right and they're wrong. A covenant is spoken. A covenant actually has words and content. And so let's go and look at the covenant that we are all talking about. It is the covenant with Abraham, and it begins in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there will be further covenantal language, yes, but none that replaces this language. The very covenant that God entered into with the Jewish people, with his visible church, was that I would bless the whole world through you. I would make you a blessing, and that blessing is particularly that I will bless everyone through you. So there is no contradiction. There is God's promise of exclusion so that there might be inclusion, so that God ultimately might reach all types and conditions of men. You might be interested in how modern Judaism takes that. There is a segment of Judaism today, Orthodox Judaism, that is still waiting for a messiah. They are looking for a human being who will be the prophet, priest, and king. They have rejected the actual one, but they are waiting for a Messiah. Uh, They think a man will come, and he will deliver them from their problems, uh, mostly by killing all of us. He will deliver them by sword and death, and he will make the Jewish people the rulers of the earth. But that is not the majority take in Judaism. The majority take today is that when God said, I will bless all the families of the earth through you, what he meant was uh, Jewish people actually, by their presence, sanctify the earth. They as a group are the Messiah, uh, and they make everything better where they go. Uh, They bring actual morality because they are truly good people. And so they will make the world a better place. It's very post-millennial, except God isn't included. It's Jews are what will make the world better. This is very different than what God's revelation seems to have said about it. The Apostle Paul, speaking to these matters in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, says this. Therefore, God supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. God's Spirit, speaking by the prophets and apostles, spoke of a Messiah who would be a blessing to all mankind. He would be the prophet, the priest, and the king. He would subsume those offices in his ministry, and he would redeem not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but those who were of the faith of Abraham. He would bring all types and conditions of men before the Father. He would tear down the veil of the Holy of Holies and allow men into his presence. Uh, This seems a little bit more stirring to me than the idea that I might have a Jew as a neighbor, and he might teach me how to live better. The Psalms don't celebrate men. The Bible doesn't celebrate men. The Bible celebrates God and what God does. And so when asked why should the Gentiles rejoice and come, the psalmist says God is the covenant-keeping God, and he is speaking to the covenant. It is the covenant that has always centered around Jesus of Nazareth. Now, our next question when we move from why is where, and if you look at the flow of this psalm, um, there is a progression. In the first verse, we are out at the ends of the earth, and then we move from there to the temple of God where men are drawn in, and then finally at the end of the psalm, All men are in covenant with God because God is the covenant keeper. There is a progression into the very presence of God from the ends of the earth, which is exactly what we see in the New Testament when in the book of Acts we are told, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. Well, that movement is right here in our psalm. All the ends of the earth are waiting for the grace of God, and the psalmist calls them to his grace They come to his temple, and then they are brought into his covenant. They have moved from despair into the presence of their maker. We are celebrating Thanksgiving today in our worship. It is a godly theme, and no better time than when the world is considering Thanksgiving to do so. If there is any presentation of the first Thanksgiving and the pilgrims this week, you will probably be told that Thanksgiving was a celebration they entered into because they had survived a terrible winter. Uh, Many of them did die that winter, and a lot of it was because they didn't know how to actually use the land and resources they had. But they did survive, and Native peoples came alongside of them and gave them food, and they celebrated living. Now, these presentations won't be incorrect. Uh, The truth is they were thankful to be alive. They were thankful that God had delivered them to live. They were thankful to the grace of those who were living nearby them, who helped them, and that's all true. But the real thanksgiving in the hearts of the pilgrims was the thanksgiving that we are called to in Psalm 100 for the reasons why we are called to it in Psalm 100. They were Gentiles from England and from Holland. They were people who were not born into the visible covenant of Judaism. They were born thousand a thousand years later but god had thrown open the temple to them jesus christ had been offered to them and god had said come into my presence and so from the ends of the earth they had been able to come and so when they joined in thanksgiving that day the primary reason they were thanking god was they could come into his temple and worship him aright. See, they had had fled England and Holland for the very purpose of obeying the psalm. The psalmist said, y'all come. God will let you come. But that doesn't mean that your fellow human being wants you to come. The pilgrims had fled from nations that claimed Christianity but had kept them from coming into God's presence, as he called them. And so... They risk death, they risk starvation, they risk freezing to death because they wanted to answer this call. They wanted to come into God's presence, into his temple, to worship him aright, and they had been able to do so. They had survived the winter, God had blessed them, and they were thankful they could be in his presence and worship him through Christ. Prosperity means nothing compared to that. Prosperity is for the brief moment of this life where your life is a vapor, your life is smoke, you are here today, you are gone tomorrow, what is prosperity in light of the fact that God has thrown open his temple and invited you in? It means nothing. But they were thankful they could come. And I keep using the term come aright. I have added material to my presentation. You may have caught it or may not have but it was decidedly significant to them. Back in England, they could worship God, but they could worship God as the state told them. And the state was not totally wrong in how it bid men to worship, but it also wasn't totally right. And it wasn't willing to bend on those points. It expected the worshiper to obey the state in the way it worshiped God. Well, before the pilgrims left England, back in 1560, another group of pilgrims, or we should say refugees, who had fled to Geneva from England, translated the Bible into English and it became the Geneva Bible. It's a wholly remarkable translation and certainly worthy of being read. But what is even more remarkable about it is the study notes they included. Uh, The Geneva Bible was literally the world's first study Bible. And in the notes of Psalm 100, there is a note on verse 4. Verse 4 reads, Enter his gates with praise and into his courts with rejoicing. The note is, He showeth that God will not be worshipped, but by that means which he had appointed. Modern readers may read that note, kind of scratch their head, and go, why did they say that? Well, what the psalm had presented was God's temple. And if you have read the word of God, you will know that God goes out of his way to describe his temple in agonizing detail. We are working our way through Leviticus right now in the midweek Bible study, and God is not exactly what you would call laid back about details. He wants to be worshipped in specific ways at specific times. Um, The psalmist throws open the temple, but he throws open the temple. God is willing to embrace you, but he is still in the temple. This is still the God who desires your holiness, who desires your obedience. When the Reformers read Psalm 100 and saw the temple being opened, They said God has revealed to the Gentiles the right way to worship him in Jesus Christ. It's not just that Jesus will accept them, but Jesus will draw them to the truth and to true obedience, to true action, to true worship. That's what the temple symbolizes. It's not a stretch. What you're looking at are men who have come to realize the importance of the truth in worship. We call this the regulatory principle. It's shorthand for God has said how to worship him. We shouldn't go above it. We shouldn't go below it. We shouldn't change it. We should worship God as he is revealed. Uh, The pilgrims had been given the freedom to do that. Jesus had bid them into his presence to worship him right. And so they were celebrating that, And we are celebrating that. The temple has been opened and God will be worshipped rightly. Uh, God has always intended it in Jesus Christ. His exclusion is for inclusion, to include all types and conditions of men. And that includes you. Do you have troubles and sorrows this day? Are there things that bother you deeply? Well, join the club. We still live in a world of tears and sorrow, but God has included us. He has brought us into his presence in Christ. None of the sorrows or troubles you're working with can compare to the grace he has given. Let us be thankful to God with no change in our outer experience this day at all. Because we do not need it. God has blessed us with himself in Christ. He has opened his temple and brought us to himself. Everything else pales in comparison to that. Now, we find God good, and we find God gracious. We take our troubles and our sorrows to him in prayer, and I encourage you to do so. But if not one of your prayers this day is answered as you would have it, Be thankful and grateful anyway. God has brought you to himself in Christ. There is no greater blessing beyond. Let us indeed be thankful.